As I was looking forward to this uh, first anniversary of my institution as your rector, I was thinking about preaching on this particular occasion of our titular feast of St. Francis of Assisi. And I was also thinking about another anniversary fast approaching. October 31st marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, when in 1517, Martin Luther posted his controversial list of debate topics on the Wittenberg Castle Church door. And that made me think back to the Gospel from last Sunday, with that parable of Jesus about the two sons. If you recall the story, a man had two sons, and he asked them both to go out and work in the vineyard. The first son said no, but lo and behold, he showed up for work. The second son immediately responded yes, but when the labor in the vineyard was to be done, he was nowhere to be found. And Jesus posed the question, which son really did the will of his father? And it occurred to me that in the Middle Ages, the church had two sons, and they had a lot in common. They were both very talented, ambitious, and single-minded. Both had the potential for worldly greatness, and yet became monks. Both had a dramatic conversion encounter with the Lord. And God called both of these men to reform and restore his church, which had fallen into a state of disrepair out of many years of moral laxity, corruption, and theological confusion. One of them became not just a saint, but the saint. Even outsiders were overwhelmed. The Sultan, Al-Kamil, let Francis preach to him and celebrated him and tried to shower him with gifts, which, of course, Francis declined. The 19th century French scholar, philosopher, historian, and skeptic, Ernest Renan, famously called Francis the one perfect Christian. The other son went down as the, the arch-heretic and schismatic of church history. It was not their first responses that mattered as much as their later deeds. Remember that in Jesus' story, the first son, the good son, was the one who first said no. You might say there's a parallel in Francesco Bart. Bernardoni. Until the age of 24, he lived life as quite the playboy. His family was wealthy and rapidly moving up in the world. He never wanted for anything. He always had the finest clothes, and he was very much known for throwing these lavish parties. He really longed to be a knight. In fact, it became his life's ambition when he was younger, because it looked so good. And so he jumped at the chance to join a company of troops set out to battle. Even though the young Francis had that empathy for others that would later make him famous for holiness, his potential for holiness at this time was more clouded by vanity. But like the first son who first said no to the father's call, but then came around, Francis was guided away from his selfish, vain pursuits and along this step-by-step -step renunciation of the vanities of the world.
The second son, literally about 300 years later, immediately said yes to the father's call, but then, we might say, ignored the vineyard. Martin Luther was sent to the university by his father to be a lawyer, but he was quickly drawn to theology and philosophy and scripture study. On the way home from school one time, certainly to do his laundry, I would imagine, he was knocked off his horse by lightning that struck very close, sort of like St. Paul. He was scared to death and he cried out, Help, St. Anna, I'll enter a monastery. He considered this vow to be obligatory. It was his way of saying thank you for sparing me of judgment. And so in response to this divine intervention at age 22, he immediately left law school and entered an Augustinian monastery. Luther, as we might have expected, quickly excelled both in his academic and spiritual duties. He was ordained a priest, awarded the Doctor of Theology, and became a young professor at the University of Wittenberg. And in his order, he was made the Augustinian Provincial Vicar of Saxony and Thuringia, overseeing all of the 11 monasteries in his province. As time went on, his lectures and writings, which had been critical of church abuses, turned more and more toward growing critical attacks on church teaching. It's interesting that both of these two sons went on a pilgrimage to Rome as young men. As a part of the duties of his order, Luther went there very much with high hopes and great expectations. But he was troubled by all the impiety and loose morals and luxury that he saw in the monasteries along his way, where he would stay the night at different places on his journey to Rome. But when he saw the eternal city, he exclaimed, Hail, holy Rome! I'm here at last. As a faithful pilgrim, he did all the pilgrimage things. He, he climbed on his knees the Scala Sancta, the staircase of Pilate from Jerusalem, where Jesus had once stepped. And he climbed up on his knees about halfway, repeating the usual prayers of pilgrims. But this verse kept coming to mind, the just shall live by faith. And about halfway up, Luther had changed. Something in him had crossed from one thing to another. He had let himself get in the way of his faith. He was pious and devout, a lover of the scriptures, in love with God, offended by corruption in the church. But from henceforth, Luther would be his own arbiter of all truth. Sola Scriptura is a kind of vanity. You make yourself the center and arbiter of all truth, of all things. And so he stopped praying, and he stood up and walked slowly down the stairs between the pilgrims and became disillusioned. And the more Luther saw the city, the more his reverence for Rome turned to loathing. In his book on Luther and the German Reformation, T.M. Lindsay notes, the city which he had greeted as holy was a sink of iniquity. Its very priests were openly infidel and scoffed at the services they performed. 
The papal courtiers were men of the most shameless lives. Luther was accustomed to repeat the Italian proverb, If there is a hell, Rome is built over it. Luther's tendency toward heresy and schism was really solidified in his pilgrimage to Rome. Francis went to Rome as a young man as well, partway through his own awakening. And like Luther, he was horrified by the loose morals and the impiety that he saw. But one thing that especially caught his attention was the cheapness of the pilgrims in their meager contributions at the shrines in Rome they had come to visit. Recklessly, Francis took out his money bag and threw it into the sanctuary toward the altar. Here's my offering. Everybody heard it and turned and looked. And then he had sort of realized that he impulsively had thrown away all of his food money. What am I going to do for lunch tomorrow and the next day? And so he determined that he would join the city beggars and that if God wanted him to eat again before he got home, that would be how. And so he learned through the brief experience what it was like to be poor, something he had never experienced before. And it led him eventually to embrace poverty back in Assisi as a way of coming closer to Christ. And later on, after Francis had fully fallen in love with holy poverty and embraced the call to rebuild Christ's church, which had fallen into ruins, he returned to Rome again, this time to seek the Pope's blessing for his new religious order. The Pope was Innocent III, and the encounter did not go well, at least at first. The Holy Father, and this is one more like you know, the unholy father, hastily dismissed this uncouth lad and his friends, telling Francis, get out of here, go lie with the pigs. Francis returned to the Pope the next day, covered in mud and stink. Innocent, that's probably an inside joke, you know, if you really want to make yourself look better, cover up your sins, name yourself innocent. Innocent asked him, why would you dare come appear like this before me? Francis responded, I did as you instructed. I went and laid down with the pigs. And this began to soften the Pope's heart. He saw a Christ-like humility in Francis. He was willing to be meek and obedient, even in the face of humiliation, just like Jesus. This beggar had something the Pope did not. The Pope had, well, he had everything. He had temporal luxury, riches, and power. Innocent III, one of the most powerful popes of the Middle Ages. But Francis had given that up. He had forsaken the temporal for the spiritual. The Pope's newfound appreciation of the Franciscans was also confirmed by a dream. He saw the poor beggar holding up the Pope's own cathedral, which was in shambles. And so Innocent approved their new order and gave them his blessing. In contrast, Luther never went back to Rome. He did not argue for his cause within the church, but began to argue against the church. 
When the Pope disagreed, Luther dismissed him as the Antichrist. Luther even got married, in part, as he claimed, quote, to rile the Pope. Now, I've heard of some crazy reasons for getting married. (laughs) But if anyone came to me for premarital prep and said that, I would say, get out of here. Go lie with the pigs. Luther did not seek papal approval, and he eventually abandoned the calls that he had made for a church council. The powerful legate, Cardinal Cajetan, met privately with Luther at Augsburg between the public sessions, trying to negotiate some kind of modification, accommodation of his teaching to accord with the papacy, but Luther just became all the more defiant. If only Luther had some of the meekness the patience, the humility of Francis. Things might have turned out very differently, both for Luther and for the church. But he was set upon a path directed away from virtue. In his vanity later on, Luther even tried to toss books out of the Bible if they disagreed with his own theology. The church is constantly in need of reform. Thank God that he gives us reformers again and again and again. Course correction is a part of the task of remaining faithful because our sinfulness carries us off course. You always have to be ready to examine your conscience and your beliefs in the light of the divine word, being willing to accept correction and guidance. Love of self, pride, vanity, these things darken our minds and our hearts. They steer us away from the path of Christ. And if we are not diligent in cultivating virtue, our priorities will quickly become disordered and our hearts and minds will be overrun by vice. The church had two sons when she was badly in need of reform. The second son quickly responded that he would go work in the vineyard. I'll enter a monastery tomorrow. But when the labor had to be done, he left the vineyard. The first son had initially responded no by his life choices. But when the work in the vineyard needed to be done, he was there, doing whatever needed to be done to accomplish the Father's will. And if they were to ask him why he came back, I suspect he might have responded with something like St. Paul's words today. Far be it from me to glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Let us pray. Most high, omnipotent, good Lord, grant unto thy people grace to renounce gladly the vanities of this world, that following the way of blessed Francis, we may, for love of thee, delight in thy whole creation with perfectness of joy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.